All right, welcome into another edition of the KSL Court Report podcast, your daily source for Utah Jazz information. I'm Andy Larson, the Utah Jazz beat writer for KSL.com. Uh, ben Anderson, KSL.com contributor, joins me on the show as he does every day. Ben, how are you? Doing great. I'm Excited doing great, for game too. six. I'm, uh, like, I'm torn because on one hand, I'm a little bit worried about where I'm going to go tomorrow, right? Like, tomorrow I fly somewhere. And it's either going to be L.A. for game seven or if game one happens, it looks like it'll also be on Sunday, but in San Francisco, or I guess in Oakland against the Warriors. But it's, you know, LAX or the San Francisco airport. It's not right. crazy. It's You've not got crazy. an hour and a half flight ahead of you. Right. What's weird, though, is that San Francisco flights are double the price of LA flights. San Francisco. Whatever. Yeah, everything's marked. Northern California. Yeah. I shouldn't be complaining because at least I have a job, unlike some of our ESPN friends and colleagues. Our thoughts are with them. Or your but, co-host. Or my co-host, yeah. <laughs> for example. You've got, you've got yeah. That's I actually, like honestly, I might have five jobs right now, so I'm trying to sort that all out. <laughs> so, But it's good. It's better than having zero jobs. Yeah. So, yeah, horrible stuff at ESPN. Mark Stein fired today. Just horrible. Right. Crazy. Yeah. It is, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Um, anyway, so let's talk about game six coming up here. Uh, in what, about three, four hours now from, from tip-off we are recording this podcast at about 4.30. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk about what we think is going to happen in Game 6, what a successful Game 6 looks like for the Jazz, and, and also kind of the other way around where things can go wrong. Um, obviously, they had shoot-around today. It was a very short shoot-around. I'm sure. Um, they went for about 15 minutes. You know, these teams have played 11 times now this season uh, between the playoffs, between the regular season, and even a couple uh, preseason matchups as well. So uh, they're very familiar with each other. They've seen all of the different configurations, uh, and now it's just kind of a, a matter of execution. Uh, and, and I guess what, from your perspective, what do the Jazz need to do to uh, – do that the best they can tonight. I mean, the first thing is just don't scare yourself out of getting a win. I mean, don't right. be the it, Jazz have never won a closeout game. This this team has never won a closeout game, so don't scare yourself out of being able to do that. And look, we can go back to looking at Chris Paul and the Clippers and the success they've had in in elimination games and going back and getting wins over San Antonio and other teams along the way. The Jazz don't have that. Now you need to not allow that to scare you out of getting a win, but I don't think I've seen that so far in the series where the Jazz shouldn't have beat the Clippers in Game One when they didn't have Rudy and they still got the win, and they shouldn't have beat them in Game Four and they got the win, and they shouldn't have beat them in Game Five at LA in a must-win for the Clippers and they still got that win. That is the biggest fear, though, is that the Jazz don't know how to have a closeout game. They don't know how to win that most important game. However, I think the Jazz are more talented. I think that's the best thing to do. Rely on what you do well, which the Jazz are great at executing because they're well-coached and they're well-prepared, and I think that carries you a long way. We talked about it yesterday a little bit with Zach when Zach Harper was on the show, uh, but he said he didn't like how the Jazz said that they were approaching it like a Game 7 because if you lose that one— uh, if you lose today, you want kind of that fail-safe of being able to beat the Clippers then L.A. like they have done twice this series. Yep. Um, Joe Johnson repeated those same comments today, saying that they do have to approach it like it's a Game 7, have that same urgency and, and desperation as the Clippers. Do you, do you agree with Zach or do you agree with Joe? I agree that the with Zach that the Jazz have two chances to win, or maybe that's not even what Zach said, but that's, I, I, I believe that's what I said, and I, and I do believe that. So even if you lose tonight— don't mail it in and say, well, we don't have a chance Sunday then. We're just screwed. Because you're not. Right. You can go and win at Los Angeles without Blake Griffin easily. I mean, not easily, but you've shown you can do it twice already. You can do it again. But you're at home. You've got the momentum. The Clippers are down. They're only going to get healthier with Austin Rivers getting back and, and more, ra- more used to playing, getting back into game shape. 
those are all things that will hurt the Jazz in a Game 7, and it's a Game 7 on the road where you just lose the majority of those games unless you're, you know, the Cavaliers going up against the Warriors in the finals or the Jazz taking on the Rockets in the first round a couple of years ago with Darren Boozer. Usually you lose that Game 7 on the road. So win this game. Take care of your business. You put in the hard work already. Just allow that benefit to come back on you. You win a game on the road to get Game 6 at home as a closeout. You've done that. That's the yeah. hard work. Now just find a way to put the Clippers out of their misery. Yeah, um, I thought it was interesting. ESPN said that there was a 75% chance that the Jazz advance in this series, right? And so that breaks down as you know a 60% chance of winning tonight and then you know a 30% chance sure. of winning Game 7 on the road. Um, the Jazz are favored by 5.5 points tonight. Do you think that's about right? Yeah, I think that's accurate. And I, I, this is the game I would say is most likely that we see a Jazz blowout in their favor. The, yeah. the Clippers are exhausted. The Jazz have figured out in the in Game 5 what they can do against the Clippers. Now they're back home with those 40 open looks, and they knock those down. And when you knock those down, you're up by 15 going into the fourth quarter. The Clippers cut it to 8, and then they get tired because they put in all this work to cut it back to 8, like you saw last night with the Bucks and the Raptors. I mean, they overcame a 25-point deficit, and then they had nothing. Right. I think the Jazz need to put themselves in that spot. Get the Clippers down, make the Clippers fight a couple of times to put some runs together, and then when they do, they're exhausted. They go to their bench or they take Chris Paul out of the game or take DeAndre Jordan out of the game, and the Jazz build that lead back up to 13-15, and I won't be surprised if we see that. That being said, the Clippers have had the early lead in four of the five games of the series, right? Yep. whether that be the 7-0 lead they had at the beginning of Game 5 or the 19-8 lead they had at the beginning of, was that Game 2, I think? Early in Game um, 1, too. After yeah. Rudy went down, they jumped on the Jazz. They, yeah, they have point. been hot getting on the Jazz. So... It, you know, it, I I think there's something to be said for it. You know, you can't worry about that if if it does happen, and because it it may, you know, it may be that early Chris Paul and and it takes a little bit uh, for the Jazz's offense to get rolling, and, and it, you know, it maybe a little bit of time for the Jazz's defense to settle in. That's it's something that we've seen a little bit of all season long from the Jazz. I think the counter to that that we've seen lately. And I guess he's only – game one and game two, Gordon Hayward wasn't great. I mean, he was scoring 20 points, but he was shooting, what, 35% from the field. Right. Game three, he had the 40-point game, went off for 21 points in the first quarter. Him getting started early is really key. Now, game four, he got sick. He was only one of three for the game. He didn't really have that chance. But even against the Clippers in game five, he had a really good first quarter. Mm -hmm. Gordon Hayward, again, was out. He was the guy scoring for the Jazz. He was getting buckets. If you can get Hayward started early again, I think that's really key. Because whether or not the rest of the team has caught up, once Hayward is moving, the Clippers have to adjust to him defensively, and that's what opens up everything else for anybody else on the floor, whether it's Joe Johnson subbing in, Rudy Gobert getting dunks at the rim, Favors getting those easy secondary looks as a shovel pass or as an offensive rebounder. When Hayward gets going early and is efficient, and he's been able to do that in most of the games that the Jazz have had success in this series, I don't really know if it matters how quickly the Clippers start because I don't think they have this talent right now to jump out to a 20-point lead and maintain that for an entire game. Uh, Quinn Snyder told 1280 yesterday on his, his weekly interview over on that station that uh, he says he thinks Quinn uh, he thinks Chris Paul will be on fire tonight. Yep. The Jazz just have to not let him burn the house down. What does that mean? You know what what does that mean? Did you just let him score? Do you do you let do, or and just kind of stay at home on everybody else or what do you what do you have to do in order to kind of let that happen? I mean I, again not let that happen again yeah and that's the keyword you, you know you don't let Chris Paul do anything. I mean you throw different looks at him you mix up your matchups you put Joe Ingles on him for stretch George Hill probably not Dante Exum he probably doesn't play in this game because you, you don't use him very much he got four minutes in game five yeah. but it, you throw as many different looks at him as you can including Hayward a couple of trips down the floor because you sell out in this game mm -hmm. you sell out in game six because if you win this 
regardless of what happens against Golden State. You've had a great season. You've done everything you can to prove to Gordon Hayward that you belong in the Western Conference and that you're headed in the right direction. So in that sense, you can burn health or, or burn minutes of Gordon Hayward's defensive energy on a Chris Paul. Yeah. And I'm okay doing that. What you can't let him do is, yeah, get going where he gets easy lobs to DeAndre Jordan, where he's finding guys open because you're double teaming him going crazy. And then Jamal Crawford or JJ Reddick are, are there sitting on the outside ready to kill you. You can't let Chris Paul have it easy, whatever happens. He's going to have 27 points and 15 assists. He's that good of a player. He's just, yeah. You just can't stop that, but make him work for those. Because if he has to work for those, then his life is really hard on the defensive end. And the Jazz have, have lived through both when he's been really bad. Uh, not bad, but he's he's not been able to be an enormous factor at times on the defensive end because he's so tired from what he's doing offensively. And you've also seen times when he shut down Gordon Hayward when he picks up that matchup. So make everything hard for him. Make him work so he can't kill you on both sides of the floor. Do you, uh, Coach Nick, do you follow Coach Nick on Twitter? Yeah, B-Ball Breakdown. Yeah, B-Ball Breakdown. Um, so he was tweeting earlier today about how he thought the Jazz – or sorry, the Clippers had attacked Rudy Gobert well in this series and that they had kind of taken advantage of some of his weaknesses in that they had brought him out into the perimeter by having DeAndre Jordan screen for Chris Paul and opened up the paint that way. Do you agree with that? Because when, when I read that, I think, A, that's what, you know, the Chris Paul and DeAndre Jordan, Blake, or sorry, Chris Paul, DeAndre Jordan pick and roll is really the signature play of the Clippers, right? Um, So it's not something new or an adjustment they're doing. And B, I feel like the Jazz in games four and game five has actually shut that down fairly well. You know, played that about as well as you can play it. Sure, they give up a few DeAndre Jordan points, and and, but you've seen their points in the paint dramatically drop over the last two games, and I think Rudy Gobert is playing that well. I, I would disagree with Coach Nick on that. I totally agree with you. Uh, agree I, I agree with okay. you, and uh, and he we used to have him on our show all the time. Like I, I love him. We've talked to him. He's a good follow on Twitter. Uh, he's got good videos. He's got interesting breakdown. If you're trying to look at some of the actual technique of basketball, it's fun to watch. There's a very notable time when Maurice Spates ran to the top of the key and hit a three, and Rudy didn't know what to do, didn't know how to attack it. And th- but that was one play that I remember very, very distinctly. Coach Nick is still the guy who thinks Rudy has terrible hands, and while yeah. Rudy doesn't have. Tim Duncan's hands or Kevin Garnett's hands or Carl's hands. He's not stone hands. You, you know, he right. catches balls. He catches lobs r- very regularly. Sure, there's a couple of examples where he brings the ball down and it gets stripped or he fumbles the ball out of bounds. But I, I think watching it over and over as much as I think people in the state of Utah have been watching these games, I don't think the Jazz have been killed by that lineup. And I, I mean, if you watch the difference between when Rudy was out in game one and game two and game three. Right versus what Chris Paul was able to do when Rudy came back. I mean, that mid-range shot and in is just gone for Chris Paul. Yeah. That, that, doesn't exi- that doesn't exist anymore. It's now you, a 20-foot shot instead of a 15-foot shot. And when you turn and that corner, difference. and then where Derek Favors was getting caught in no, man land, no man's land, defending the pick and roll, Rudy can stay in that spot, which is three feet in between Chris Paul and three feet in between DeAndre Jordan, but because he's so long... That lob has to go up, and it has to go really high, and it has to either go over him, which throws off the timing of DeAndre Jordan, which makes that lob impossible, or he has to take that jumper instead of just going for the automatic two points, which is on the lob. So Rudy's been a huge addition for the Jazz in this series. The other thing that happened a couple times in Game uh, Game 5 was that that lob was thrown, and then the Jazz, because his timing is off, he has to land in order to dunk it, right. and then you can foul him. And then you foul him, and it's and, perfect. And that happened two or three times in Game 5, and he missed... Uh, I don't know what his free throw rate was, but it, it wasn't good. It was DeAndre Jordan. He's DeAndre Nets, right? Jordan numbers, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, it, you know, it, that's I, another strategy the Jazz can use and another way that Rudy Gobert is changing the game. Now, I guess if there's a question for the Jazz tonight where maybe Quinn Snyder's 
rookie experience as a playoff coach is at what point does, if at all, does he default to his, quote, default lineup? At what point does he go to this lineup and say, I've had success with Joe Johnson here. That's the matchup I trust most, regardless of who the Clippers have on the floor. Instead of saying, I'm going to go Boris Diaw, Paul Pierce, because I like that matchup, I'm just going to go with Joe Johnson because Joe's been my guy throughout the series. Does he do that as a default because he feels so much pressure to win game six? And if he does that, that could come back and hurt the Jazz if he doesn't have that exact mismatch, which has made Joe Johnson so successful in this playoff series. Does he feel like he has to pull Boris Diaw three minutes into the game because the Jazz are down 12-9 to nine and has to get Joe out there? I would hope he doesn't because he's done such a good job not doing that so far in the series. Uh, yeah, I might. I mean, I, I don't actually hate that substitution, right? Like, I, I, I want right. Joe Johnson out there against Paul Pierce or Murray Spade, Sure. Right? But you've had good mismatches here, even when you've taken Joe Johnson off the floor. And Joe Johnson actually wasn't great in Game 5. Right. He was good in Game 5, and he hit the he hit big he shots hit late, because he always does. But he didn't have this crazy efficiency. He was 6 of 14, so he's right. sub 50%, 2 of 5 from the three-point line, which is good, but it also means they're allowing him to take some three-point shots there. Eight rebounds is a great number. Three assists is a great number. But he was plus one on the game. He didn't have this crazy plus-minus. The Jazz offensive rating wasn't off this chart. Uh, when he was on the floor, I would hope Quinn Snyder doesn't just default to his best players. Even though at times you have to do that, the reason they've won this is because they haven't had more talent until Blake Griffin went down. They've had better matchups. Right. Joe Ingles isn't better than J.J. Redick. But in this matchup, he's a better player. He's more valuable than what J.J. Redick is, and, and that's given the Jazz an edge, and I would hope they continue to play with that type of mismatch uh, example that, that, is, that has been beneficial for them throughout the series. And I guess I would, I would quibble by saying... Joe Ingles is a good matchup against J.J. Redick. I think Joe Johnson is a better matchup than Boris Diaw is, as well as a better player. Depending on who you put out there, I guess. I think I think against nearly against, everybody. Against most teams. Having a nice big body, I think, like Boris Diaw early in the game to get everybody involved is really valuable. Okay. And he does that more than Joe Johnson. Joe Johnson's a great passer. He's not a Boris Diaw-level passer because Boris Diaw is one of the 30 greatest passers in NBA history. He really is that type of guy. He's got great vision, and he's six foot eight, six foot nine, so he can make passes that even Joe Johnson can't make. Yeah, and I think he, I think he passes as a first option, and Joe, I think, passes when as a second option. Right? And that's that's a good way to set rhythm in a game, and that's what the Jazz are looking for. They've they've had that offensive rhythm. They're bouncing the ball all around the perimeter, and that's why they're getting open three after open three after open three really quickly because you wear out that Clippers defense, and that's where Boris Diaw's value comes in. Yeah. Um, George Hill's role, he's had one good scoring game in the series. That was game three uh, with, with the 26 points. Do you think he needs to step it up more than he did in, in the other games? Or do you think you know what we saw from George Hill in the four out of the five games is pretty much what we'll see in game six? I think that's what you'll see in game six unless Chris Paul is just exhausted or saving it all for the offensive end and says, I've got to be 40-point Chris Paul and I've got to save some of my energy on the defensive side of the ball, and that means George Hill's going to have a bigger effort or, or a bigger op opportunity offensively to score. I don't suspect you see a huge George Hill game here, but at the same time, I, if you could put some truth serum in Chris Paul, do you think he's had an easy possession down the floor either side with George Hill guarding him or guarding George Hill? I mean, George Hill is always running. Yeah, He is getting into the paint, and then he's setting a back pick, and then he's going over to the corner, and then when that's not there, he comes back and gets the ball on a dribble handoff and goes and restarts the offense and gets it to Gordon Hayward. I mean, you are chasing Gordon Hayward constantly if you're Chris Paul. George I don't, Hill. George Hill. Uh, you are constantly having to chase uh, George Hill if you're Chris Paul, and I don't think that's an easy thing to do. Yeah, that's a good point. Do, uh, I, I wonder like how much the... And maybe it doesn't matter at all, but like the, the articles, like Bill Simmons' article yesterday or... You know, uh, 
Oh, who was it that had one, a good one uh, for the ringer today? Or No, it was Arnovitz. Arnovitz yeah. had a good one about Chris Paul today. I wonder how much of that will play into his psyche about how he wants to re- be remembered as a Clipper, um, at least for this season. Well, uh, as about, part of a as part of a team concept, if that makes. But the weird reports today, the Clippers are saying they're they're very confident they're going to sign Chris Paul to a super max contract. You yeah, know, the post thirty six contract, the two hundred million dollar deal. You're still in season. Yeah. Why are you talking about what you're doing with Chris Paul in the off season? The Jazz have been very good, and Dennis Lindsay has addressed it a little bit. That obviously the number one hope is to resign Gordon Hayward in the off season, but they're not talking about it before an elimination game. And they're not saying exactly. And they're not saying, hey, we need to, we we think we can, like we you know we we think we got this guy locked up, right? Because if there's a way to like piss off a guy, it's to say, oh, we know what he's gonna do, right? Or to throw a weird mindset of the rest of your team and say, yeah, we're already thinking about the summer. Yeah, that's true. If you're thinking about the rest of the summer, how does Austin Rivers get engaged? And I know he's very fiery. Austin Rivers is going to be fine. But some of these younger guys, or Raymond Felton, who's going to start worrying about his career or where these other guys are signing, J.J. Redick even has a free agent this offseason. Bamute. Right. When you start talking about your plans for the offseason with Chris Paul, don't you inherently start to think, well, what about my offseason plans? What yeah. am I doing? And it's not vacation. It's what does my career look like be beyond this year? year? Yeah. And I think that's, that's a weird, unnecessary distraction that comes because – who who would that source be? Well, their coach is their general manager. Right. So, so it's I mean, there's someone in the front office, right? It's right. Be it's a scout someone or coming a, in the front office. You know, Lawrence Frank or something like that. Or it's the coach. Or and that's crazy. Coach. Like that's a weird. That's that's really incestuous to be talking that much outwardly and having that report get out. And again, it makes you take your eye off of what's going on, which is tomorrow doesn't exist for the Clippers. Because if your season ends, it's over. What right. you did all year is gone, and it doesn't matter. You've got to find a way to win. You've got 160 days to talk about Chris Paul's free agency. Right. Whatever it and is. it doesn't affect anyone else on the team, in all honesty. You, you, you're your own free agent. Everyone's a free agent in the offseason because you're either going to get traded or you're going to come back. But you know, you, you essentially, whether you have a contract or not, you have to worry about yourself, what you're going to do, where you're going to be, how you take care of your own body, all that stuff. And if they're talking about Chris Paul, it's just it's a weird wrench to throw into a team that I don't think needs extra distractions unless they have kind of just said, yeah, we just we can't hang out with this jazz team. Speaking of offseason movements, um, Larry Bird stepped down as president of basketball opera- basketball operations for the Indiana Pacers. We've talked about in the past on this podcast about how uh, Paul George being available or not available in the player market this summer may impact what teams are willing or able to get Gordon Hayward in the offseason. I don't know whether Kevin Pritchard, who is a man who's going to be stepping into his shoes, is going to be more or less likely to keep Paul George, but it seemed pretty clear that Larry Bird wanted nothing to do with that decision. I think he wanted to get out of there because that's a bad that's – a, that's it's not a bad a leg, You're not going to have your legacy tarnished if your name is Larry Legend. <laughs> but, yeah, you don't want to be the guy who failed to bring Paul George back or made a bad trade getting rid of him and not getting equal value back. Those are all right. things that people could look at you and say, well – he wasn't that great when really Larry Bird has been a really good GM or president of basketball operations. He's he's done a lot of good things for Indiana. For the last, what is it, 10, 15 years, I think he's I mean, been in that role. Doing that or flirting with coaching and stepping right. onto the floor, he's, he's just been good. He's been good for Indiana. Uh, I, it kind of reminds me of, and this is, Kevin O'Connor said in a radio interview, um, the Jazz is Kevin O'Connor, that he knew that the right thing for the Jazz was to rebuild after the Darren Williams years. He didn't want to be the one who did it. Right, and I think that's one of the reasons why the franchise then went out and got Dennis Lindsay and and kind of put him in in the path to take charge, if you will. There's a and good article today at the OrlandoMagicDaily.com just lamenting the fact that they blew it hiring Dennis Lindsay. I mean, Dennis Lindsay was on their finalist list mm-hmm. of guys they wanted to hire, uh, and who did they go out and get? Rob uh, Hannigan. Rob Hannigan. He's gone. Right. Or they're firing. You know, and 
they made that mistake, and then they had Quentin Snyder kind of in their coaching mm-hmm. chain too when they were talking about who they were going to hire, and they blew it. And the Jazz didn't blow either of those. Right. You know, the Jazz made two very excellent hires, and that's good ownership, and that's that's how you build a franchise. That's why good ownership is so important. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, that's another edition of the KSL Court Report podcast. As always, if you want to tweet us at Andy B Larson is my Twitter handle at Ben K Fan is Ben's, or you can uh, you can listen you can podcast. Sorry, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. We've got Game Six coming up in just under four hours. Here, we'll be ready for you with any other info. Oh, Mon- well, Monday will be either the end of the season. We'll be talking about that, or we're going to yeah. be talking about the Jazz after Game One against the Golden State Warriors. Good point. It'll be fun. I'll be there if there's a game. I guess technically the Jazz could lose and then win game seven. So one way or another, there's a huge change coming Monday, whatever (laughs) we're talking about. Yes. Uh, So tune in for that on Monday. That'll be the next KSL Court Report. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a good one.